you say you are That grace can really change your heart Do I live like your love is true? Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. Uh, this is a special Mother's Day for me because I actually get to celebrate Mother's Day with my mom. My mom and dad both live in Houston, and so uh, they're up here this, this weekend, and I get to celebrate Mother's Day with my mom. And so if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I would like to just say, Mom, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm the youngest of three. I have an older brother and a sister who's five years older than I am, and uh, they were the good kids. Uh, we'll just say that. I was the mischievous one, and so, Mom, I just want to say, when I was in sixth grade and I hid outside the bathroom uh, and jumped out and scared you, I'm sorry that I laughed. And uh, when you clutched your chest, I'm sorry that I laughed harder, so please forgive me for that. Um, so there were a lot of things that I did as a kid growing up that, that made my mom experience quite a bit of pain, I'm sure. And uh, so we celebrate Mother's Day, and we also recognize that Mother's Day is not an easy holiday for everyone. Some didn't have great relationships with their mom, and it's difficult to think about celebrating a mom who who you didn't have a good relationship with. Others here may desire to be a mom, yet God has not blessed you with children Some of you maybe lost your mom this year, or perhaps as a mom you lost a child this year. And so we want to honor you and celebrate you as well, as much as the moms that we celebrate, including the moms who are spiritual mothers to to other women and other men who, who are not their own, but they took them under their wing and have raised them spiritually, brought them up in the instruction of the Lord where that was lacking in their own lives. And so if you notice on your way in, on the doors, on, uh, over where the coffee and donuts are, and back on the connections table, you'll see that there are some vases with flowers in them. And so I would encourage you, if you're a mom this morning, just pick one of those up on the way out. If you desire to be a mom, and God has not blessed you with children, but that's the desire of your heart, pick, pick up a flower on your way out. If you've lost a mom or you've, you've lost a child this year as a mom, then I encourage you to pick up one of those on the way out. If your mom is not here with you this morning and you're going to celebrate her, then pick one of those up on your way out. So they are for, um, for a number of reasons. Um, if you're with your spouse or your mom and you know that she's not going to pick one up, pick one up and take it to her. Um, make sure that everyone leaves, all of our ladies leave here this morning with a flower celebrating their unique role that God has designed them for. Um, Before we jump in, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 this morning. We've been going through the book of Mark for almost a little over three months now. We've been going through for quite some time, and it's been an enjoyable ride. I don't know about you, but for me, one one of the coolest things has been the reading plan that we have. And we challenged each other when we started to just take five minutes a day and get into the Word of God. And we provided a reading plan that takes you through 
all of, Ma- uh, all of Mark. It takes you through some of the Psalms and some of the Proverbs over these 17 weeks that we're going through the book of Mark. And some of you have been keeping up with that. Some of you have fallen off, and that's okay. There have been weeks when I've missed a few days, but I just jump right back in. And that's just the way it is. But I had an experience this week that really made me think. Uh, we had a staff meeting on Friday. And then a bunch of us went to lunch afterwards after staff meeting, and we're at 600 degrees. And I was looking at my gas gauge on empty, and uh, I, I thought, I can make it. I can make it. There's a little bit left in there. Uh, I normally keep mileage, so I know how many miles I can go before I have to fill up, because I don't always trust my gas tank. And apparently I should trust my gas tank more than my mileage, um, because I ran out of gas. And so I had to call Quentin, our youth pastor, and say, hey, uh, I can see you down the street. I'm stuck at this stop sign. Can you come follow me, you push me, help me push this car out of the way so I can go get some gas. And so by the time he gets in his car, I get my car started. And so I drive a little bit and put it in neutral, turn it off, let it coast a little bit, and then turn it back on. And sure enough, we get right on Austin Avenue and it runs out of gas. And man, I can barely make it up, uh, up the hill to make that turn to get in the old Albertsons to that little gas station that's right there on Austin Avenue. And thankfully, this guy named Edwin sees Quentin and I trying to push this. It's not, a, it's not a big truck. It's a Ford Ranger, little bitty Ford Ranger, and we're struggling to push this truck uphill. Um, two guys, and so Edwin pulls over and says, you, you run out of gas? <laughs> yes. Uh, just thought we'd get some exercise. Uh, so he says, hey, man, I got a chain. Let's hook it up, and I'll pull you guys over to the gas station. So he pulls me over to the gas station, and I'm just thanking him. And I'm thinking about this on the way home. I'm like, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me other than I don't need to be so stubborn in my life that I need to kind of pay attention when things indicate that something needs to be checked or something needs to be filled. And I thought about it, and I started thinking about the reading that we're going through in Mark. And I thought, you know what, spiritually... Uh, I'm like my car. You know, cars, trucks, they run better when there's something in the tank, right? Can we all agree on that? Cars and trucks run better when there's something in the tank. Even if it's just a little bit, it'll still run. But when it's empty, it won't go anywhere. And uh, thankfully, I had Quentin and Edwin to come alongside of me and help me out. And spiritually, I think we're exactly the same way. If we expect to go anywhere, if we expect to run, there's got to be something in our tank. We've got to spend just a little bit of time filling up our tank every single day. It may not be four hours. uh, It may not be 30 minutes. It may just be those five minutes. But get something in your tank every single day. And and here's my encouragement to you. Um, I know moms especially, having four young kids, um, I see the struggle every day. The desire to be in the Word, yet the balance and trying to struggle for how do I get time in the Word. And there are going to be days you miss. And so I want to encourage you in this, that in your spiritual life, you need to have a Quentin and you need to have an Edwin who are going to come alongside you and they're going to try to push, they're going to block traffic for you so you can get to the gas station. They're going to do whatever they can to help you along the way. They're going to get out and help you push. And when when you can't get up that hill on your own, they're going to get out and tow you. Um, so I just encourage you, I hope that that helps you, that encourages you to be in the Word. Just fill that tank, even if it's just a little bit. Put something in your tank every single day from the Word of God. So that brings us to Mark chapter 15. And when we get to Mark chapter 15, we've really reached the climax of the story. This is the main thing that Mark has been building up his gospel to. Everything that we're going to read in this chapter centers around one event. And it's not the resurrection. That comes in chapter 16. No, Mark has centered his entire gospel around the crucifixion. For him, this is the pivotal, the pinnacle moment of Jesus' life. 
It's actually where it ends. And he records five different times that Jesus pulls his disciples uh, aside and he says, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be hung on a cross. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Mark has been pointing to this. This is the absolute pinnacle moment of Mark's gospel. And last week in Mark 14, we read, we started with the very first part of chapter 14, and we read about Mary coming and anointing Jesus' body. Immediately after that, Mark records the observance of the Passover meal, which Jesus institutes as the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, or Communion. And so we have Jesus taking this beautiful Passover meal, something that had happened thousands of years ago, foreshadowing his coming, his life, and the new covenant in his blood. And he explains it to his disciples. And he says, I will not eat this again until I come to my kingdom. So we have the observance of the Last Supper. And then the disciples and Jesus head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's while Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's lying face down, pouring out his heart to God, praying, God, if there is any other way for this cup, if there's any other way to achieve the redemption of mankind, let it be so. I do not want to go to the cross because I know the pain and the agony that it's going to cause. Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will, I'm still willing to submit to you, Father. And so he does. And it's at that moment that his disciples have fallen asleep. He's already predicted to Peter that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. And so Judas comes with the Roman guard and the temple guard, and they come and they arrest Jesus, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin has a problem, number one, because they try Jesus at night. This is an illegal trial. According to Jewish law, you weren't allowed to have trials at night. Ever notice how some of the worst deals for the American people happen in like midnight sessions of Congress, there's a reason for that, right? And so God says, look, we're not going to do court at night. That's when bad deals get made. We're going to do it during the daytime. Um, but they, they try him at night. And not only that, they bring in false witnesses. And Mark tells us that the witnesses, the false witnesses, couldn't even agree with each other about what Jesus said and what they were accusing Jesus of. And he remains silent. He remains silent until one of the members of the Sanhedrin, one of the high priests says, uh, are you the son of God? And he says, I am the Son of God, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And it's at this moment that they tear their robes and they accuse him of blasphemy. And because they didn't have the authority to execute Jesus on their own, they go to the Roman. They take him before Pilate, and he has another trial in front of Pilate. And Pilate's interviewing him, and he says, I find no fault in this man. He's doing everything he can to get Jesus off the hook. Yet the people are persistent, they're screaming, and so Pilate says, look, I'll release Barabbas, a murderer, and a thief to you, or Jesus, which one do you want? And they stir up the crowd, the chief priest, the high priest, stir up the crowd, and they say, give us Barabbas. So Pilate, his hand is somewhat forced, and he hands Jesus over to be executed. And it's interesting that while in, the, in front of the Sanhedrin, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, when they come to Pilate, they know that that's not going to fly. And so they have to accuse him of claiming to be king. They say, look, if he's king of the Jews, then that means he's putting himself ahead of of Caesar. And there's no king but Caesar. And so they change their story and they get Jesus arrested and he's handed over to be flogged, which is when they, they take him out back, the soldiers take him 
and they have what's called a cat of nine tails. It's a whip that has about nine, nine or ten uh, little strands of rope that come off the end. You can see the knots that are in there. This is one that uh, they used often during the 1800s for sailors. When they would disobey, they would flog them publicly so that no one would, uh, would choose to step out of line again. And while they used knots later in history, because what good is a sailor if he can't move, back in Jesus' day, they would have tied pieces of metal in there. And every time they whipped him, those pieces of metal would dig in, and when they pulled back, it would flay the skin. And so his back is badly beaten, and after he's had enough, within an inch of his life, the Roman soldiers take him, and they shove a crown of thorn on his head, and they begin to mock him and beat him. And then it comes time for him to be crucified. And he's walking along the road, and we read this in Mark chapter 14. Starting in verse 21, they forced a man coming from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, a Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They thought they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. Now, what's happening here is that Jesus is so weak that he cannot carry his own cross. Part of the Roman crucifixion was that you had to carry your own cross. Yet Jesus has been beaten so badly that he doesn't even have the strength to carry his own cross. And so they compel a man. That means they forced him. They were the Romans. They could do as they pleased. And so they forced this man to carry Jesus' cross for him because he doesn't have the strength to carry it himself. It says they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So this wine mixed with myrrh is is believed to be some type of sedative, something that they would give criminals before they were crucified to kind of take the edge off. And Jesus refuses it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on the right and one on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was counted among the outlaws. Now it's interesting to me that just a few verses earlier, a few chapters back, James and John come to Jesus and say, let one of us, when you come into your kingdom, let one of us sit at your right and one at your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? And they say, yes. And I think what Mark is pointing to is he's pointing them back to that. Remember when James and John asked to be at his right and his left. Remember what they asked for. And now we see it's not two of his disciples, but two criminals. Two criminals on either side of Jesus. And he was counted among the outlaws. Verse 29 says, Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who could demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days? You save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. Now, what you have to understand about the cross is that the Romans were masters of torture. They had made their living on torturing people so that they could keep the peace. They would come up with the most sick and twisted ways to execute people so that everyone else would see it 
And they would say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to steal that. I don't think I'm going to try to raise an insurrection. And the cross was the pinnacle of all of their torture elements that they had. This was the absolute worst way to die that you could think of. Because not only would you be nailed to the cross, but it was something that, uh, it was excruciatingly painful. And usually people didn't die from loss of blood, but they died from suffocation. And often it would take days because as you hung there from the cross, you would have to pull yourself up and push up from your feet in order to grab your breath, only to fall back down and sink back down. And it would take days sometimes for people's strength to give out. So they would just hang there in the sun. Now, most of us treat the cross a little bit differently than someone in Jesus' day would have looked at the cross. We wear the cross around our neck. We wear the cross as a piece of jewelry or hang it as a piece of art in our home. But what you need to understand is that to a first century Christian, to a first century Jewish person, the cross would have been scandalous. It would have been offensive. Deuteronomy 21, the, the law says that cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. And in those days, they, they viewed the tree, the cross, as that tree. And so the very fact that Jesus is hung on the cross, for people in his day, they would have said, this man is cursed by God. He is completely separated and cut off from God because he's been hung on the tree. This is not something that we think of. The other part of the cross that I think we often get an image of that's probably not very accurate is we always picture the cross high up on a hill and that it's a really tall cross, that Jesus is like 10 feet in the air. When in actuality, it was probably somewhere a little bit closer to the ground. And it would have been a major thoroughfare that the Romans would have crucified him as an example, as a warning to other people. So everyone who passed by would look the people being crucified in the eyes and say, i I do not want to end up like that. Whatever they did, I don't want to end up like that. And so we've got to understand the magnitude of what's being communicated here. It's not just a cross. It's something way more than that. We go on and we read in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see here in Mark that he's given, this is one of three times that he records Jesus speaking in Aramaic and then he gives the translation. And every time that he has recorded Jesus speaking in Aramaic and then he gives a translation, there is something major that happens, a major miracle that happens. The first time we read about this in Mark, we read that it was when he raised the little girl from the dead. He says, Talitha kum. Little girl, get up, and she's raised from the dead. The second time, it's when Jesus heals the deaf man, and he says, Afatha, be opened. And the man's ears are open. So as a first century reader, as you're reading this, you come across the Aramaic again. You think, this is it. God's going to bring him down from the cross. God's going to do something amazing. God does something amazing. But it wasn't bringing Jesus from the cross, bringing him down from the cross. It was leaving him on the cross to die and pay the penalty for our sins. Because without his death, there would be no miracle of salvation. There would be no gift of salvation. So instead of Jesus coming down from the cross, he dies. He dies. And we read in verse 35. 
when some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it to a reed and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. I love that. I love that Jesus' last action was to let out a loud cry. To me, this is an indication that no one stole his life from from him. No one killed Jesus. He willingly gave his life. He had the strength at the end to let out a loud cry and let them know that he was giving his life. No one was taking it from him. So he gives his life for you and for me that our sins could be forgiven. In verse 38, it says, Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split from top to bottom when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, This man really was God's son. Continuing on, there were also women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. So Jesus is here in his last moments, and he's abandoned by all but a few who are looking on at a distance. Jesus has been abandoned, and he dies on the cross. When we think about that phrase of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are many who think that this was the moment that the weight of the sin of the world was put on Jesus Christ and God the Father turned his back on him. I don't quite think that's what's happening. I think it's something much deeper, much more spiritual. I think what we see with Jesus is that he is experiencing not the physical, the real absence of God, but he's feeling, he's feeling as if he's been abandoned by God. He's feeling the weight of everything that's on him. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And think about Jesus since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the inseparable Trinity. I don't know how it works, but I do believe it. I don't know how you have three in one, but I do believe that there's three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit making up the Godhead. And at this moment, for the first time in all of human history, the Trinity experiences the feeling of separation. Experiences the feeling of separation and Jesus cries out. We read in 2 Corinthians 521 that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so jesus is taking on our sin he's taking on our sin and in that moment he feels the separation he feels the distance of what it's like to be separated from god relationally i wonder Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that feeling of God being so distant? Have you ever been there? Are you there now? If you're there now, know this, that Jesus didn't stay on that cross. That when he died on that cross for our sins, he paved the way for the resurrection, which we'll read about next week. 
proving that he had paid for our sins, opening the way for us to have a relationship with the Father. And so we don't have to feel separated from God. Something that's very interesting to me is that when Jesus utters this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting from Psalm 22. Now in Jesus' day, they didn't have chapter and verse like we do today. If I were to say, go to Psalm 22, verse 1, you could look in your index, find where what page Psalm is on, flip to chapter 22 and find verse 1. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have that neat little system, number system. So when someone wanted to reference a passage, they would quote the first verse, the first few lines of the verse, and everyone would know that when he was quoting verse 1, that he was actually quoting all of Psalm 22. And I'd love for us to look at Psalm 22 this morning, because I think it's important for us to understand what it is Jesus is saying here, because there's so much to this psalm that I think we miss. And the first thing that I want us to, to be aware of, as David's writing this psalm, he's expressing the same feeling that Jesus is. You see, Jesus knew that God was not separated from him, but he felt like he was separated from God. And I think what we need to understand is that there are going to be times in our life when we do not feel God's presence. There will be times in our life when we do not feel God's presence. But we can trust that he is still present, that he is not absent, that he is there with us. This is what Jesus felt. This is what the psalmist felt when he wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance, far from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. O Father, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted And you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. The psalmist and Jesus are saying, our forefathers trusted in you even when they felt abandoned by you and you delivered. So I am going to trust in you and trust that you will deliver me. Continuing in verse 6, he says, but I am but a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by people. Everyone sees me, who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what we read about in Mark as people passed by, the Roman soldiers, the people being crucified with Jesus, sneering, mocking him. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Again, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the scribes and the chief priests said. You took me from the womb, making me secure while my mother's to my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me, because distress is near, so that there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My stung tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put, in, you put me into the dust of death. For dogs surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Oh, what is amazing about this is that not only is this a psalm of lament and a psalm of mourning that David has written, this is also a psalm of prophecy. In David's day, there was no such thing as crucifixion. So there's no other explanation than that God had providentially given David a glimpse 
And he's writing this messianic psalm. He says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided their, my garments among themselves. They cast lot for my clothing. This is what happened with the Roman soldiers. You see, it was the Roman soldiers' right that whoever they were crucifying, whatever possessions they had on them at the time, they, were, they could help themselves to that. And so for Jesus, clothing and possessions, they cast lots. Again, we see a prophecy about the Messiah. 19 says, but you, Lord, don't be far from me. My strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, before we go on, what I want us to understand is that we are coming to a turning point in this psalm. When we get to verse 22 of Psalm 22, there's a turning point where the psalmist says, this is how I feel. I feel like God is absent. I do not feel God's present in my life, but here is what I know. Here is what I trust in. And so we read in verse 22, I proclaim your name to my brothers. I praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise his name. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or detested the tormented and the afflicted. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. Jesus was not separated from the Father, even though he felt as though he was. I will give you praise in the great congregation. Because of you, I fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. And all those who go down to the dusts will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell people, tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. We see very clearly in this that the psalmist, that Jesus, as he is quoting this psalm, he is saying, even though I do not feel God's presence, I am trusting that God is still present and that he is working to bring about redemption. There are going to be times when you do not feel God's presence in your life, but you can trust that God is working to bring about redemption. In this case, God was working to bring about our ultimate redemption, the redemption of all mankind through Jesus' death on the cross, dying for our sins. But you can also be guaranteed that in those little moments when things get difficult at work, when you're struggling in your marriage, when you're struggling as a mom, as a dad parenting your kids, even in those little moments, and it feels like God is absent, you can trust that God is present and he is working to bring about redemption of that situation. I know there are some here this morning, we already covered this, but Mother's Day is a difficult day for you because you don't have that great relationship with your mom. Perhaps it feels like God is absent from your relationship with your mother. And I would just encourage you to trust 
that God is present and he is working to bring about redemption. If you only seek him, seek his will, seek his face, and trust that he is working, even when you can't feel him. I've used this next uh, little illustration before, but I love it. It helps me. I'm very visual. You can also know that I'm the father of preschoolers because it's a choo-choo train. Uh, and on this choo-choo train, you'll notice you have the engine, you have the coal car, and then you have the caboose. And as we look at this, what we see is that there are three aspects of our spiritual life. We start with the fact that drives the train, and then we have our faith, which fuels our are trained to be driving forward, and then we have our feeling, right? And here's what we need to understand about this train. Faith, or fact, faith, feeling. You can cut off this caboose, and the train will still run. The train will still run. You put your faith in God's word, trust that what he says is true. You continue to fuel this engine to run. The fact of God's word, this is God's word here. My kids, I love hearing them say it. What is the Bible? The Bible is God's word and everything in it is true. You can trust it. It's reliable. We put our faith in that. You can cut off that caboose, but if you cut off the engine or you get rid of that coal car, it's not going to go anywhere. There are times when I was a youth pastor that kids would come for worship. They'd come to Wednesday night and they'd all start crying like, oh, that was so great. That was, I feel so close to God. Why? Because you had a feeling? Sometimes the feeling is not there, but God is still as close to us as in those moments when we feel God's presence. We must base our relationship on him, with him, on fact and on faith, not on our feelings. Because there will be those times when we do not feel God's presence, but we have to trust that he is working to bring about redemption in our lives. I know many of you here can identify with the pain and suffering that Jesus felt. You know what it's like to feel rejected. You know what it's like to feel abandoned. You know what it's like to feel alone. There are times when you have those feelings and you may have friends that come around you, yet in the back of your mind something says, well, they don't really understand. They don't really feel the way I feel. They don't really get it the way I feel. I feel abandoned. And here's what I want you to know is that Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling in those moments. I love Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet was without sin. And so in those moments, when you feel like no one understands, you can trust that Jesus does. Jesus understands what it's like to be abandoned. And we put our trust in him. We put our trust in the reality that God is present even when we don't feel him. Now, we've talked all about the crucifixion this morning and some of the things that we don't often think about when it comes to the crucifixion, but there's another important piece to this story that I feel like we often overlook. And that's the Roman centurion. After Jesus has died and he cries out, that Roman centurion says, truly this man was God's son. Truly this man was God's son. Now we don't get an indication of whether or not this is a genuine proclamation of faith or if he's just making a mental assent to, wow, this guy, there was something different about this guy. We don't know. We don't know. But here's what I do know. Here's what I take away from that. 
the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ, demands a response. It demands a response. And there are only two responses to Jesus' death on the cross. You can either say, no, I don't believe that. I choose not to put my trust in that. Or you can say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God's son who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross for our sins. And I believe that it's only through trusting in him that I can have a relationship with God, have my sins forgiven, and spend eternity in heaven with him. And so this morning, as we come to our take two, I just want to uh, encourage you, what is your response to, to the cross? What is your response to the cross? If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I've, I've never put my trust in Jesus, I still have some questions, I'd encourage you, write those questions down. Write them down as we take two, or just simply write this, I say yes to Jesus Christ. I say yes to the cross and putting my trust in him. Others of you here this morning can relate to what Jesus felt. You're at a point in your life, you're going through something in your life where you do not feel God's presence and you're being challenged to believe and trust that God is present and working to bring about redemption. Uh, To you for your take two, I would just encourage you to write out what is it, what are the challenges that you're facing and what is a verse or two verses that might encourage you to trust that God is present in your life? Maybe you're in a different boat altogether. Maybe God is just bringing to mind the name of someone that you know who needs to hear about the crucifixion of Jesus. They need to hear about his life, death, and resurrection. And I'd encourage you to just write that name down. But at this time, I'd just like us, either you see it in your bulletin there, it's a moment to take two, just what is God saying to you this morning? And then right below that is a little line that says, I will. What steps are you going to take to accomplish, to move towards what God is asking of you? Let's take two.